From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Deal or no deal in Durban, negotiations at the UN Climate Summit go down to the wire, disrupted by a young American activist urging immediate action. Action was promised, but will nations deliver? Also, the redfish rocks off the coast of Oregon team with fish, but soon they'll be off limits to fishermen. It's really difficult, the thought of the marine reserve, to have your fishing grounds taken away. You know, and my first instinct was just to run and hide from it. Overcoming reservations about establishing a new marine reserve. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Geller. Climate talks in Durban, South Africa, got off on an energetic, positive foot as U.N. officials, negotiators, and politicians took to the stage and got down. And then when the music was over, they got down to two weeks of tough talks. Typically, U.N. climate summits are annual cliffhangers with negotiators huddled in hallways, making last-minute deals behind closed doors. But this year's marathon meeting in Durban ran deep into overtime. And as the drama unfolded inside the convention hall, outside on the streets of Durban, environmentalists protested the slow, painful pace of the talks. People united will never be defeated! The Durban talks came right down to the wire and beyond, with a lot on the line. Hanging in the balance, the fate of a climate-changing world and the future of the U.N. climate process itself. Alden Meyer is just back from Durban. He's Director of Policy and Strategy for the Union of Concerned Scientists, and he joins me from Washington, D.C. Hi, Alden. Hi, Bruce. You must be exhausted. The The last uh, few hours, minutes, seconds were very tense at the climate meeting this year. Yeah, they were. And, of course, most of us have been up the last uh, two or three nights. It went all night uh, for a number of the ministers on Thursday and then uh, Friday and, of course, around the clock on Saturday. This was the longest conference of the parties, so it was a record breaker. So when all was said and done, what was done? Well, there's a number of parts of the so-called Durban package. First of all, the European Union, Norway, and a few other countries decided they would stay in the Kyoto Protocol after the first commitments expire at the end of next year. No change from Japan, Canada, and Russia, which have indicated they want to drop out. And, of course, the deal for that, for Europe agreeing to stay in, was that the U.S., China, India, other countries that don't currently have any binding commitments under Kyoto need to engage in a negotiation that will start this year, go for three more years, and not take effect until 2020. So Kyoto is the only legal binding treaty that we've got that applies to 37 industrial countries, uh, not the developing countries like India or China. And then they want to keep that going for, what, another five years. That would take us to 2017 and then start negotiating a new pact that would take effect in 2020. That's right. They actually, they punted on the issue of whether the next commitments for Kyoto would be five years or eight years because... uh, most of those in Europe, they've already legislated their emission reductions out to 2020. And if you're not going to have the new 
negotiating period take effect until 2020, you might as well make it eight years, many of them think. So that'll be decided uh, at the next meeting in, in Bonn this coming May. But the big deal here is that we really were at a fork in the road. If, if you hadn't extended Kyoto and you hadn't launched a new round of negotiations, we would have been going back to the purely voluntary days of the early 1990s under the Rio Treaty when countries put on pledges or made promises. But of course, with the exception of the former Soviet Union countries, which had deep emission reductions as a result of the collapse of their economies, none of the rest of the industrialized countries met their promises. And that's why we had Kyoto. So we really were at a choice point here, and, and uh, it was good to see them maintain the rules-based multilateral regime. But, of course, it's got some holes in it. Uh, the coverage will drop from about uh, 28% of global emissions and about 15 or 16 because of Japan, Russia, and Canada jumping out. And, of course, uh, the rest of the world won't be brought in until nine years down the road. So it's not ideal, but it's the best we could have gotten. And there was a sigh of relief, I think from the uh, small island states, the most vulnerable countries, the European Union and others that want to see climate action when this deal was finally done in the wee hours of Sunday morning. So Japan, Russia, Canada, they're not going to stay in, in uh, Kyoto. Is this, um, is this meaningful in terms of preventing catastrophic climate change? Well, I think the other part of this was it's not as aggressive as it needed to be in terms of near-term reductions. There are a few handles in the uh, part of the Durban package that came out that called for countries to start talking next year about how they could up their game and how maybe we could bring in some sectors that aren't covered, like international shipping and aviation. But the reality is we're not on a path to meet the goal that was set in Copenhagen two years ago of holding global temperature increases below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. We're a little under one degree now, so double that, then you will double the impacts that we're seeing now, which are already starting to mount, particularly on the most vulnerable countries. So I don't think there's anybody that came out of Durban that thinks that we're doing enough to really come to grips with this catastrophic problem. So Alden, is this process, the UN process, any way to save a planet? Well, it it can't be by itself. Uh, The reality is there's no international process, there's no UN body that can force big countries like China, India, the U.S., others to do things that they don't believe are in their national interest. So I think the bottom line is action has to start at home. You have to build the political will to do things. But then you've got to bring what you're doing into the international regime and collectively decide how you're going to get the world on a path to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. So it's not the ideal, but as Don Rumsfeld said, you you fight climate change with the regime you have, not the regime you want. And I think that's sort of where, we, where we're going now. Well, Alden, get some sleep. I will indeed. Thanks a lot, Bruce. Alden Meyer is Director of Policy and Strategy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Well, during those last tense hours of negotiations, we reached Jennifer Morgan at the Durban Climate Summit. She's Director of Energy and Climate Programs at the World Resources Institute, and she was feeling a bit bleary-eyed when we called. Yeah, long nights, long days, that's for sure. And why does it take so long? Why do they always seem to go right down to the wire? Well, I think there's a lot at stake here, and the decisions that they're making are not small. So I think it's a a mixture of intense technical details that have to be sorted out. I mean, just imagine the forests and how you use your energy and, and how you count things and how you create funds are all very technical. But then, clearly, the politics here is incredibly complex as well. And 
you get into the field of the U.S. versus China's relationship and how Europe is moving forward despite the euro crisis and Africa coming in. So if you mix that complexity of politics and policy, it just takes time. What about the mood of this meeting? Each one has a different sense to it. What's your sense of the mood? Well, I think the mood is a mixture of things. I think on the one hand, everyone here is aware of the fact that what this process and what countries are currently committing to do is deeply inadequate in comparison to what the science is telling governments that they need to do. On the other hand, though, I think that there's a sense of slight movement or optimism to try and finally resolve this question of the legally binding thing and get the fund up and running and get incremental steps moving. There was some frustration by a young American student, Abigail Bora, who was attending Middlebury College and was in Durban, and she she interrupted Todd Stern, the U.S. envoy for uh, climate, during his speech. I want you to listen to that. How did that play there in Durban? Well, I think that she was very inspirational and spoke the words uh, that many people feel here, uh, but that sometimes diplomatic speak doesn't allow to be said. Talking to us from the UN Climate Summit in Durban, South Africa, is Jennifer Morgan. She's Director of Energy and Climate Programs at the World Resources Institute. Jennifer, thank you so very much. Thank you. Well, Abigail Bora, the 21-year-old student who disrupted the speech by U.S. climate envoy Todd Stern, says she doesn't regret what she did. I reached her in Durban by Skype. I was a bit terrified. It was one of those things where I knew that I had to sort of rally all the forces and uh, be courageous and stand for what I believed in. It was a high-level plenary event. The COP president takes statements from distinguished dignitaries from every country at at the UN. And when he called the United States representative, Todd Stern, to come up, um, I started speaking because I didn't think he could speak on behalf of the United States. And so I wanted to issue a statement um, calling for more ambition and calling for more urgency in the U.S. position. Were you arrested? I was not arrested. The UN has a code of conduct and speaking like that is um, against the code of conduct. And so they took away my accreditation for the rest of the conference. When you were um, led out of uh, the session, you got many a cheer. I did receive an ovation from both civil society sitting in the back as well as negotiators from a lot of different countries. So your position is that that, uh, the United States and other countries, that the process is just failing. I definitely think there's lack of progress. And I think the United States in particular is deliberately postponing any type of ambition. We've decided that because of um, obstructionist Congress, we, we can't make a stance. We have nothing to bring to the table when we come to these conferences. And so it's stillborn right from the start. Um, and so what my statement was trying to say is that we cannot perpetuate this international gridlock in the negotiations. As the United States, we have to lead in the fight against climate change, and we can't deliberately postpone progress. It's your generation that's going to have to deal with this mess. That's true. And a lot of adults, parents of friends, teachers will say, you know, it's up to your generation to fix the problems. And frankly, I'm really not willing to take that. I think because of the science and the necessity to act now, yes, my generation is willing to step up to the plate. 
but the generation before us must set the scene. If we need to have peak emissions before 2020, and the United States doesn't want to have a binding agreement to have emissions reductions until 2020, it'll be too late to wait. And that's part of the statement that I had is, um, as a youth, I have the right to have a livable planet. So are you now encouraged by what's happened at the COP17 in Durban? Um, I'm still I'm still pretty disappointed. I think we need to really rev up the action. One thing that I am encouraged by is that after my statement, Todd Stern pushed his press conference earlier and spent a significant amount of time trying to justify the U.S. stance and, in fact, saying things that he had not been saying before. And so I think what I did really opened the door and was a game changer in terms of the U.S. stance and how other countries, as well as NGOs, were able to relate and really push the U.S. and drawing attention domestically as well as internationally to our government's lack of action. Have you seen the video of, uh, of you giving your, uh, your protest? I have. <laughs> what do you think? I think that the youth have a really strong message and we have an enthusiasm and urgency about us that is so unique in the negotiations. You can sit in the plenary halls for hours on end and the negotiators themselves will fall asleep and they're full of empty rhetoric and empty promises. And I think it really was time for someone to stand up and say, we're shackling justice and we're perpetuating international gridlock. Well, Abigail Bohr, it has been a, a real pleasure. I want to thank you so very much. Mm, thank you for having me. Abigail Bora is a student at Middlebury College and a member of the youth delegation to the UN Climate Talks in Durban. Just ahead, vertical farms go up in a Nairobi slum. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Nairobi, the capital of Kenya, is a bustling business city, but it's also on the bleeding edge of climate change. Rainfall disruptions and drought have led to a mass migration from rural areas of the country to the city. And today, 60% of the population of Nairobi live in slums. Hell on Earth is how Jocelyn Zuckerman describes these impoverished places, but in the latest edition of On Earth magazine, she writes that the slums of Nairobi are also on the leading edge of urban agriculture and what is called vertical farming. For her article, The Constant Gardeners, Jocelyn Zuckerman traveled to the city's vast shantytown called Kibera. Most of the buildings are made of just sort of scraps of cardboard or mud, um, corrugated tin roofs. On top of each other, really, with just little uh, dirt alleys running between them and laundry hanging all over, open sewage that you have to step over and around. But there's also lots of little stores and barbershops and butchers and bakeries. So there's, there's a lot of industry happening there, a lot more than people realize, I think. And a lot of people, and a lot of people without food. Yeah, people are really hungry there. There was a study that was recently done and I think it was something like 20% said that they had gone a day and a night without food in the last couple months. Poor people around the world, especially in cities where they don't have access to land to grow their own food, generally spend from 75 to 80% of their incomes just on food. So this is an area that's, that's already feeling the effects of climate change. It's sub-Sahara. Uh, the desert is moving further south. And it's pushing people into cities, mass exodus. 
Right. The, the desert is moving further south, and also the cycles of the weather are shifting. So the um, the dry periods are longer, and the rains are coming at times when they're not expecting them. They're also tending to be more extreme, a lot of rain. And when a lot of rain falls on the land that's been dry for so long, it can't absorb it. So they're just they're finding it much more difficult to farm in that part of the world. Something like 15 million people are moving to the cities every year. And you write that by 2050, two-thirds of the world's population will be living in cities. Right. That's according to the UN. And they're turning what little land they have into, well, farms. They are. They're doing some of it in um, what they call vertical gardens, which are just um, recycled grain sacks. It's about three feet tall and a diameter of probably a foot and a half. And they fill them up with some rocks to give it some structure and then dirt and poke some holes in the side and plant um, its kale. They call it sukuma wiki there, which is uh, Swahili for to push through the week because it grows pretty quickly and you can buy it cheap. So it's pretty much the staple that Kenyans rely on. And so they're growing that and scallions and cabbage in these vertical gardens. At first I saw um, one or two in front of various shacks and then at one point I turned a corner and there were something like 35 of them um, And as I walked around the settlement, I just saw more and more of them. Where did they get the water for their sacks? Well, a lot of them are reusing wastewater. Um, There are some public taps, but I think something like 100 people share a single tap, and that's water for, you know, cooking, bathing. So in terms of gardening, they're often reusing wastewater, water that's been used for maybe washing dishes or washing laundry. It's that or nothing. These people are living in real desperation, um, and they're, they're finding ways around it. You know, in your article, you mentioned uh, prominently a farmer. His name is Francis Wachira. Have I pronounced that correctly? Yes, Francis Wachira. He's, he's quite a guy. He's a fantastic guy. He really is. Um, he struggled for a long time living in the city. He, he wanted to farm. He started trying to do it, and people made fun of him because there is a lot of um, stigma attached to what people do in cities and what people are meant to do in the countryside. And he stuck with it. And now he's got a pretty good-sized farm. He's growing all sorts of vegetables and fruits. How how big is his plot? Yeah, it's about a quarter of an acre. It's amazing. In addition to all the fruits and vegetables, he's got 500 rabbits there. Um, He's got uh, wooden hutches, cages that he built himself three stories high, each of which can have two to five rabbits, I would say, in there. And he feeds them with um, kitchen scraps and grass from his farm. And then he composts everything to use the nutrients to put back into his farm. Well, we spoke with Francis Wichera. We called him up. Well, I want you to hear what he said to us. Actually, when I started this urban farming, it was like a miracle. I'm feeding my family, a family of five. Everybody here is growing some vegetables. So actually... The future of the world depends on urban farming. If you don't encourage people to grow food in the, in the urban area, we are going to have a shortage of food. Well, Francis Wacherem, who we just heard from, uh, actually traveled to the United States, and he had uh, things to teach Americans about farming. Absolutely. He was a really inspirational figure. He was in the States for six weeks in Denver, talking with farmers. And at one point he said he he gave this speech and he was talking about his rabbits, his 500 rabbits that he's raising in downtown Nairobi. And at the end of the speech, the whole crowd was on their feet shouting, Rabbit King, Rabbit King. (laughs) And um, he understood that he really had something to teach these people. So Jocelyn, is urban agriculture the, the face of farming in the future? 
I think it absolutely is. I mean, I, I don't think we're going to have a choice, especially with the, the populations moving to the cities the way they are, and also our land being degraded. The soils in Africa in particular are so tired, they're just not growing crops well. So people are needing to figure out ways to, you know, other ways to do it. And these, these low-tech methods that they're using in Africa were really impressive, and they're sustainable. Jocelyn, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Jocelyn Zuckerman's article, The Constant Gardeners, appears in the latest edition of On Earth magazine. It's published by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Oregon is going to ring in the new year with its very first marine reserve. It'll be just a few miles south of the rural coastal community of Port Orford, Often protecting part of the ocean can create a conflict between fishermen and conservationists. But as Jason Alpert reports, at Port Alford, they're both on board with the project. You'd think Tom Calvinisi is an artist. He sports tortoiseshell glasses in a soul patch. But he's a biologist, a graduate student at Oregon State, and he studies rockfish, which belong to the genus Sebastes. Which is Greek for magnificent, and to me they are pretty magnificent. Take the China rockfish. It's jet black, mottled with yellow, and topped with menacing spines. And they're one of nearly 40 rockfish species along the Oregon coast. Besides being stunning to look at, rockfish are big money. They're a delicacy in markets reaching from Seattle to San Francisco. Finding these fish is essential for the fishery. So it's important to know where these fish spend their time and how healthy their habitats are. And that's where Calvinisi comes in. On a rare clear day in Port Orford, Oregon, a team of researchers motor out on the fishing vessel Top Gun. Today's objective? Catch, catalog, and tag rockfish. Tom Calvinisi organizes his field notes and points to what's beneath the surface. There's actually an acoustic array set up to look at fish movement patterns in relationship to reserve boundaries. Calvinisi's array tracks fish that he's tagged. Each tag fish transmits a unique ID. The acoustic array then detects and records the location of the tagged fish. You need to understand more about how fish use space, where they go, how much time they spend there, what type of habitats they're likely to be found in. So we're starting to do more place-based management, and that means we've got to collect spatial data. So that's where movement studies come in. Calvinisi wants to understand how much space a thriving rockfish population needs. And a marine reserve, where fishing is not allowed, is a good place to answer this question. It's where we're headed today, to the site of a future reserve called Redfish Rocks, a two-and-a-half square mile reserve off the southern coast of Oregon. The waters here are teeming with fish, but once the reserve's established, fishing will be off-limits. Jeff Miles is a commercial fisherman, and he captains the Top Gun for Calvinisi. You know, it's a very unique area in here because you get all the species, the chinas, coppers, quills, wing cod, canaries, yellow eye, halibut, God, you name it, we've caught it all here. Miles stations the vessel near a towering rock. And it sounds like you were one of the folks first involved with figuring out where they would possibly put a marine reserve. Is that true? Yeah, it was there in the beginning. What was that like? Scary. Why is that? Uh, It's really difficult, the thought of the marine reserve, to have your fishing grounds taken away. You know, and my first instinct was just to run and hide from it. The biggest thing is, 
people don't want to lose their ability to make money. Many commercial fishermen rely on these fishing grounds, and for those that do, Miles says the eventual ban on fishing, once the reserve is established, will amount to a 10 to 15 percent loss of income. How many people are going to voluntarily take 10 percent out of their paycheck? Not very many. In his 35 years on the water, Miles has seen overfishing deplete rockfish populations near Port Orford. Rockfish don't reproduce every year, so once their numbers drop, they have a hard time coming back. So Miles and others in the fishing community turn to scientists like Calvinisi for help. The Top Gun's crew sets an anchor and baits fishing lines. Their goal is to catch and tag fish. The boat dips and rolls from the Pacific swell. Ooh, ooh, I got one, I got one. Yeah, that's a cabazon. <laughs> hey, we got another China. Grab her Brianna got a China. Calvinisi writes down the catch by species, sex, and length in his notebook. That's a male kelp greenling, 27 centimeters. He creates a makeshift operating room in the boat's stern. It's stocked with scalpels, suturing tools, and a homemade cradle for fish surgery. You grab me that wash bottle right there. Um, start time. Okay, we ready? Yeah. You got to go to hold on, yeah, right? A china rockfish is on its back. It's tense and taut. A damp cloth covers its bulging eyes. Water streams over the china's gills and flows over the back of its throat. All of this is intended to hypnotize the fish. And sure enough, the fish is limp within seconds. I think it's getting there. Anal fin went down a little bit. Starting to relax. Gently pressuring the belly, Calvinisi makes an incision. Off the center line of the fish's body between its vent and its pelvic fins. The incision's just big enough for the acoustic tag. The tag's slightly smaller than a double-A battery. Okay, and put a few stitches in the fish, close up the wound. Calvinisi weathers splashing water and sloshing fishing gear. He's pure focus. He flips the china right side up, and presto, it's dehypnotized. From there, the fish is placed in a recovery cage and eventually released. Jeff Miles, the Top Gun's captain, watches the surgery from the sidelines. I like the tagging part here. I've always wanted to know what fish do and where they live and how they move and... Yeah, I think it's cool. That's why I'm trying to donate the time and get this done. And I realize that you just can't keep hammering on them. they got to have some places where they can live to survive. And that's what really pushed me over the edge, I guess. Now, Miles and his crew support Calvinisi's project. And Calvinisi says Miles' knowledge is priceless. Jeff Miles is making my research possible. We have species we're targeting for this research. And they're not the most commonly encountered species. So in order to capture enough of them to do the research, I need to find them. And I don't know where to find them. I don't know where to go to catch China rockfish or copper rockfish or quillback rockfish. I'm in awe of someone who's got that kind of knowledge just from having lived it. The next day, I sit down with Calvinisi in his apartment. Outside his bay window, I can make out the Redfish Rocks Reserve in the distance. But Calvinisi's focused on his data. So what we're looking at here is sort of the other side of the story. So yesterday we put the transmitter tags in the fish. And at the other end of the story is this receiver that receives those signals. Actually, this is all the data for one tag. This is a canary rockfish. What we know about them is they actually do move around quite a bit. And that's what we're seeing here. Calvinisi says traditionally, scientists have a starting point, where the fish was tagged, and an end point, where the fish was caught. 
And so we have these two points, and we make inferences about a fish moved from there to there, but we don't know anything about what they did in the interim. So here we get an opportunity to get that long time series that combines the space and time in a way they have, we haven't been able to do before. Calvinisi plans to make his tracking data available to everyone, scientists, of course, but also fishermen like Jeff Miles, fishermen willing to sacrifice immediate gains for the knowledge that their way of life will be sustained, even if traditional fishing grounds like redfish rocks are permanently set aside for conservation. For Living on Earth in Port Orford, Oregon, I'm Jason Albert. Our story about the Redfish Rocks Reserve comes to us courtesy of the Ocean Gazing Podcast. It's produced by the Centers for Ocean Sciences Education Excellence with support from the National Science Foundation. For more information, go to our website, LOE.org. The Bosque del Apache Wildlife Reserve is in south-central New Mexico. The wetlands of the Rio Grande floodplain are a perfect place for wintering snow geese. Tens of thousands of the birds flock together for several months, feasting on corn that's specially planted, since the snow geese now have to share their habitat with farmers. Writer Mark Seth Lender spent many days watching the birds, from their sunrise flyout to sunset return. A thousand snow geese take off all at once. The black flag flight feathers of the tips of their wings sure like the blades of powerful engines. They crawl and scrawl their way onto the sky, white and black on cold, clear blue, clinging there, slow motion, before they truly free themselves from gravity and rise. To collide, full thrust, would be disastrous to fragile hollow bones. Somehow they avoid, the tree line, its nagging branches reaching, the interloping weight of a sandhill crane amongst them by mistake, the competition of their own with each other's wings, coordinate, all up, all out, all down. Into this chaotic space, they speed, safe, their voices, their limbs and bodies crushing the air, into that sound endless ice age snows might have made, white noise over white, frozen ground. Mark Seth Lunder is the author of Salt Marsh Diary, A Year on the Connecticut Coast. Mark has more to tell about the snow geese of the Bosque del Apache Reserve. For that and some of his photos, Take a gander at our website, LOE.org. And there you'll also find our new survey about living on Earth. Please take a few moments to fill it out and let us know which of our stories soar and which lay an egg. Coming up, rebranding the Asian carp, we have the winner of our Silverfin Slogan Contest. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Gilman Ordway, for coverage of conservation and environmental change. And the Sierra Club, helping city-bound kids explore and enjoy wild places they'll later strive to protect. Online at sierraclub.org slash livingonearth. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It was the largest release of toxic fly ash in U.S. history. Three years ago, just three days before Christmas, in the middle of the night, a giant holding pond ruptured in Kingston, Tennessee. A billion gallons of water mixed with fly ash surged into nearby rivers, submerging 300 acres six feet deep. The fly ash came from the Tennessee Valley Authority's nearby coal-fired power plant. Fly ash is one of the most heavily produced and unregulated energy wastes. In the United States, there are 347 fly ash pits, and federal investigators say nearly one in three is in poor condition. The EPA has proposed tough new rules for fly ash and has received almost half a million responses from the public. But House Republicans want to prevent the rules from taking effect. If fly ash was regulated, it would have a big impact on places like Lakeland, Florida, where a giant mountain of the stuff has been growing for years. Reporter Chase Purdy has written about it for the Ledger newspaper. You know, going out there, it's very what I would imagine to be moon-like. It's mostly just sort of gray ash that's been mixed with some other materials. It kind of gives it like a plasticky sort of feel. It is a sizable mound. It's probably not unlike the moon. How much fly ash is there? It's tough to be exact. There are definitely more than 100,000 tons of fly ash in in that pile alone. How many piles are there? This is the second one. The first one is not quite as big. And then I guess the third one would be just a few years down the road once they cap this second pile. So all of this fly ash is coming from the local electric plant there? Right. Basically, um, the byproduct of coal combustion is this fly ash. You can do a few things with fly ash. One is you can sell it for beneficial use, which was great for the housing market down here because it can be used for concrete. A lot of construction companies will use fly ash for building houses and other projects. What you don't sell, they store it, and that's what the mound is. Well, the housing boom has gone bust. Do you still have a market for fly ash? You know, they make a, a small amount of money off of it now. Of course, that number has dropped tremendously. Basically, in 2010, they made $60,000 selling fly ash. But back in fiscal year 2008, they did make more than a million. But it does have lead in it. It's got mercury. It's got some other heavy metals in there. Right. There are all types of uh, different metals that are in coal ash, and that is sort of the, the major concern by activist groups like Earth Justice and, you know, even the EPA, that were to get into drinking water and people were to consume it, there is the possibility that that could lead to certain medical issues, including cancer, um, brain damage, heart problems, all sorts of things. So no fears that it might spill into your Lakeland Lake? No, no one's really concerned about that. And the electric company down here, they do keep pretty close tabs on where the runoff is going and how much runoff there is. There are standards that they have to meet before essentially constructing these giant mountains. Well, the EPA wants to rename this stuff. They want to call it hazardous waste. Exactly, yeah. Basically, fly ash is one of the largest, I think it's the second largest industrial waste stream in the country today. And to ensure that it's safely disposed of, they want to sort of tackle fly ash using this piece of legislation called the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. And there are two options. One would be to allow the states to oversee how they dispose of fly ash. And the other option, which is the more contentious one, would be that states would have to adopt the EPA standards for uh, handling hazardous waste. You know, you store hazardous waste in hazardous waste landfills. 
for Florida, that's a problem because our state statute says very specifically because of our water table and our elevation that we cannot have hazardous waste landfills, which would mean shipping out these tons and tons of ash that we accumulate. So where would you send it? Well, the closest hazardous waste landfill is up in this tiny little town in Alabama called Emil, and they have actually up there the country's largest hazardous waste landfill. And talking to city officials here, that's a 1,200-mile round trip. I would have, you know, have to go by truck every day. Boy, that'd be costly, too. Basically, it would cost about $5 million extra a year to ship this stuff out. And who would pay? Taxpayers. Yes, sir. So what do uh, the residents of Lakeland think about having this giant mound of fly ash in their backyard, basically? You know, uh, it's a big mountain that's viewable if you drive by Lake Parker. I think people have been kind of curious about what it is, but it hasn't really sparked any serious concern that would have citizens up in arms, at at least not at this point. You think they'd be up in arms if they had to pay uh, another $5 million? (laughs) I think we have yet to see that. So what happens now? Well, basically, the next is just sort of a waiting game. I mean, there are a few things that are happening. Uh, One is waiting for the EPA to finish going through the many, many public comments that they've received. And then, you know, also the discussion has already started in Washington. The Republicans in the House of Representatives have already put forward some legislation that would essentially pull some of the teeth from the EPA's ability to regulate the disposal of coal ash. And that passed the House and is moved on to the Senate, where it's currently in committee. The Obama administration has already become involved. They sent along a statement, essentially, to the Senate asking senators to quash the measure. So still being discussed up in Washington. Well, Chase, it was good talking with you. Thank you so very much. No, thank you so much for having me. Chase Purdy is a reporter with The Ledger in Lakeland, Florida. The first industrial revolution was fueled by coal and steam. The second revolution by oil and the automobile. And according to social philosopher Jeremy Rifkin, we're on the cusp of another industrial revolution, this one powered by renewable energy and communication technology. Writing in his new book, The Third Industrial Revolution, Jeremy Rifkin argues the shift will be socially disruptive, but ultimately rewarding. Jeremy Rifkin recently spoke with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood. So your concept of the third industrial revolution hinges on the convergence of what? Two things, new energy and communications systems. And if you could explain for us how uh, a new energy and communications paradigm uh, worked uh, out during the first industrial revolution, that would be helpful. In the first industrial revolution in the 19th century, print technology became very cheap. That combined with public schools. We introduced public schools in Europe and America in the 19th century and created a print literate workforce with those communication skills to manage the complexities of a coal-powered, top-down, steam-driven first industrial revolution. In your book, you say, in many ways, the idea of a centralized top-down power began with the Pennsylvania Railroad Company in the late 1800s. Yeah, that was the, uh, the model really, uh, because, remember, railroads had to rely on uh, storage of coal across the country and seeding public lands and huge logistics issues in maintaining where the rail cars were and where they were going. It was very complicated. And they created the first centralized, top-down business model. 
So now let's go to the second industrial revolution. What changes in communication, what changes in energy, and what happens to mobility? The second industrial revolution brought a new convergence of communication energy. The telephone was essential. Centralized electricity and the telephone allowed us to connect across dispersed space across the continent in very, very quick time. And then later, radio and television became the communication media to manage and market a more dispersed auto era based on oil-powered fuels and a suburban rollout, which was much more dispersed, and a mass consumer society. They went hand-in-hand. A handful of oil companies emerged. We had a handful of public utilities, and we began to see the outlines of what would uh, be the most centralized, top-down economic model in history. And that system right now is really on life support and dying And I think um, it's probably precipitated why a lot of young people are pretty upset on the streets. So we had a first industrial revolution with coal. You say we're at the end of the next industrial revolution that we had with oil and gas. And now we're moving into a third industrial revolution, which you say is based on lateral power. What is this third industrial revolution? The third industrial revolution sees the merging of our new communication revolution, the Internet, with our new energies, renewable distributed energies. And when the Internet communication technology begins to manage these distributed renewable energies, we have a very powerful third industrial revolution. What's really interesting about renewable energies is they are distributed, meaning they're found in every square inch of the world in some frequency, the sun, the wind, the geothermal heat under the ground. So unlike fossil fuels, which are our lead energies and only found in a few places and require top-down organization, Renewable energies are distributed and found in everyone's backyard. What you're saying the Third Industrial Revolution is all about is renewable energy and making it possible for us to use this in a collaborative rather than a top-down way. And then the other factor for this, you say, is is this will also get us out of the boom and bust cycle. That is, uh, the sun, the wind, these are continual. Better said than I could have. I think the key here is it's a sea change in thinking between an older and younger generation. Let me use the music companies as an analogy. They did not understand file sharing and music. When millions of young kids started figuring out ways to create software to share their music around the world, the music companies thought it was a joke. Then they were terrified. Then they went out of business. The newspapers similarly did not understand the lateral power of the blogosphere. Millions of people coming together in things like Wikipedia or in social spaces to create their own information and news. And now newspapers are either going out of business or creating blogs. You know, you're talking about lateral power taking over, but you spend much of your book describing how the third industrial revolution is being imposed really in a top-down way in Europe. Important ministers, high government officials. Seems like a contradiction. What's happening is the top-down is actually being pushed by the bottom-up. What's happened across Europe, especially beginning with the discussions on climate change, is millions of people said, we've got to do something. And they started pushing for feed-in tariffs so they could uh, get premium for converting their buildings, sending power back to the grid. People began talking about how local communities can begin organizing for energy efficiencies and began to share energy with surrounding communities. So there's been a tremendous push from the bottom to make this happen. And Yes, then the politicians responded. So I think, uh, yeah, it's bottom-up, it's top-down, it's everybody. And so how is America responding to your vision? Well, a lot of the old industries, especially the energy industries, have a huge sway in Washington. They're an obstacle, but I think history's on the side 
of moving into this new model. The question is, can America move fast enough? During this upcoming political year, what everyone has to ask themselves is how the hell do we grow an American economy based on old energies that have peaked, prices going up, climate change impacting us now, and old infrastructure? There's just no way to do it. Your vision here uh, is what? A 50, 100-year plan. How do you implement that with a political system that can't see past the next election? Very tough. If we don't change consciousness, we're not going to get there. What we need is to shift from geopolitics to biosphere consciousness. Before the Industrial Age, every community, whether they were foraging, hunting, or agriculturalists, had to rely on the rhythms of nature. When we went to the first and second Industrial Revolution, we saw this stored chunk of sun, coal, oil, gas, and we thought we could hermetically seal ourselves off from nature and create an unlimited cornucopia of wealth. It was an illusion. When we go to a third industrial revolution, for example, where this is moving in Germany and Europe, people in their homes, offices, and buildings, they're totally attuned on the software to what's going on moment to moment with the solar radiance outside the building. What's happening to the heat under the ground when they change seasons for their geothermal heat pump? What's happening to the garbage that's decomposing in the basement in their bioconverter? So we become intimately aware that each day we are attuned and re-embedded in the rhythms of the planet we live in. That's biosphere consciousness. And uh, the question is, if we don't do this, what's plan B? Well, Jeremy Rifkin, I want to thank you for taking this time with me today. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure being with you. Jeremy Rifkin's new book is called The Third Industrial Revolution, How Lateral Power is Transforming Energy, the Economy, and the World. I'm Steve Kerwood. In our recent story about the invasive Asian carp, there were suggestions the fish needed a new name. Marketers came up with Silverfin, and we asked listeners to come up with a jingle, and a few of you took the bait. Steve McNitt, a sales manager at Schaefer Fisheries, sells Silverfin, and he joins us to weigh the entries. Hi, Steve. Hi. So we had a bunch of jingles entered into our contest, and it came down to the final four. So let's go down through these. Um, Bonnie Green from Atlanta sent us one. It's to the tune of Swim Little Fish. Boop, boop, did them, did them, want them, chew. And they swam, and they swam right over the dam. Silverfin, white plate, boiler-baked, butter, lemon, sprig of parsley winner. What would you think? Okay, well, it was... It, it, the song itself wasn't too bad. It was fairly short. I kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> well, and there was another one by uh, Seth Tuper from uh, Albany, New York. He listens on WAMC. He had one called The Holiday Carp Song. Eat separate fish, sweet silver fin, all seem to say, try carp today. Silver fin's here, everyone cheer. Sing young and old, where is it sold? Young yeah, that's the one I cared the least for. With rice, boy, it tastes nice. One seemed to cheer, try fish this year. So what, what didn't you like about uh, The Holiday Carp Song? I guess the rhythm of a da 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 and one just a lot of repetition there. Silver pins here. Very, uh, it's very, done to the the, the tune of Carol of the Bell, so you don't like that tune, huh? Share it can ship best fish and chip. Right, I must not like that song either. <laughs> <laughs> bah humbug, huh? Yeah. Very, very tasty. Then there was the one uh, just 
called Silverfin, and it's by uh, Michael Robinson. Silverfin, what a fine taste that silverfin. You're gonna like it too, my friend. Give me another bite of that silverfin. Give me another bite of that silverfin. Right, and that was all right. I, I, that was all right. I did enjoy that. So then we had one by Scott Gatsky. He, uh, he had a tune called Please Pass the Carp. Carp, C-A-R-P. It's a plentiful fish that's good to eat. You know, I didn't think I'd like it, but I really do like it. Please pass the carp. Carp, once you give it a try. Carp, I think you'll be surprised. It's got a pork-like taste that'll make you say, Please pass the carp. Please pass the carp. That's the one I like the best. Oh, really? Why? The guy could sing, and it uh, had a nice rhythm to it. I liked it the best of the four. <laughs> All right, well, Steve, thank you very much. All right, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Steve McNitt is with Schaefer Fisheries. He'll soon be sending Scott Gatsky in Wisconsin a couple of pounds of Asian carp, or silverfin, for his catchy jingle. You can drop us a line or hear the final entries on the internet. LOE.org. Please pass the carp. Please pass the carp. We leave you this week in the South African veldt. Veldt is a Dutch word. It refers to wide open spaces in southern Africa covered with grass or low scrub. In Australia, you'd call it the Outback. In South America, the Pampas. Here at the Medikwe Game Reserve in South Africa, the sun sets over a watering hole, and the sounds of frogs and insects fill the air. John Bullock captured the chorus for his CD, Night of a Thousand Songs. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Jessica Elise Kern, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shreeskandaraja, with help from Sarah Calkins, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Rafaela Benin and Jack Rodolico. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirishdeen composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the Living on Earth Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds. 
integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.